Let's pray together. Father, over these last couple of months as you've guided my study of this book, um, it has been an amazing path. And even though we only have two Sundays to look at it together, I pray that the beauty of this story will seep into all of our hearts and that these next few moments that we spend together will bring you honor and glory, will lift up your Son, our Redeemer, and will cause us to be filled with, with humble thankfulness for all that you have done to bring us to him and him to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, the curtain fell on Act 2, and Naomi has come to the realization that this benevolent landowner that Ruth just happened uh, to stumble upon in, in his field is, in fact, a relative of her dead husband, Elimelech. And she recognizes that he is one of their family redeemers. We took a week-long um, break, and now we're back, and the curtain is about to come up on Act 3. The most important act in the story. So often in a play, it's the third act that encapsulates all of the action of the entire play. And when the curtain comes up, we can tell that several weeks have passed. We're back in Naomi and Ruth's home again. And the emphasis has shifted from provision to rest. And rest in the Hebrew concept is not just a place to sleep or uh, something that happens during the night until you wake up the next morning. Rest kind of ties in with that word shalom, that word for peace in Hebrew that's more a state of being, a, a, a way to be able to feel comfortable and at ease and not nervous, not tense, not uptight. And Naomi has come to realize the fact that because Ruth has surrendered her home and her family to come and live with her, that it is now her responsibility as the mother-in-law to help Ruth find a place where she can find rest. Ruth's only concern up to this point has been to make sure they have enough to eat. She has worked hard every day through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest. She has collected food every day, brought it home. They've added it to their stores of food for the dry season. And now as the curtain comes up on Act 3, we start with this first plan, this first scene where Naomi shares a plan that she has for her daughter-in-law's long-term rest. And here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you will be taken care of? Now that word security in the Holman is that word rest. The word in the Hebrew is manoah, which means a sense of, of peace. And security is a good word for it, a sense of, of being able to... Know that you have now what you need, not just for the moment, but for your ongoing care and life. In, obviously, in these days, it related to having a husband, having a family, having a home, all the things that would give her that sense of a security that a woman would need to have in, in the ancient world. 
So in verse 2, she goes on and says, Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now that's how we know that some time has passed. Normally they would harvest the barley first. They would let it sit and dry while they did the wheat harvest. And then after the wheat harvest was finished, they would go to the threshing floor and they would beat out the barley to get the grain from the stalks and everything and put it away for the dry season. So now it's threshing time. So in verse 3, she gives Ruth some instructions. She says, wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Now let me just stop right there. We've talked many times about the fact that no single English translation can capture all the subtleties of another language. It doesn't matter whether it's an ancient language like Hebrew or a modern language like Spanish. There are certain words in Spanish uh, that no matter how you try, you can't directly translate them. And it's the same way here. The word that the Holman translates your best clothes actually is the word simla, which just means a cloak, a colorful cloak that you would put on. And the reason that this and some other translations, the NIV and I think even the New American Standard tend to translate it as your best clothes is because of another passage in the Old Testament that talks about washing, putting on perfume, and it was referring to a a, a bridal, uh, a bride preparing for her wedding. But The word simla is found in Deuteronomy and other places, and it really just means an outer cloak that you would wear that was attractive, but by no means was it a wedding dress or any kind of special clothing like that. But it does have an impact, because you have to remember, Ruth was living her life as a widow, And a widow would not wear anything that was bright or colorful. She would wear drab colors, often undyed uh, clothes that would signify the fact that she was in mourning. And so, in essence, what I believe Naomi is saying to Ruth is not put on a wedding dress, uh, and we're going to get into why that might would, 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 would be the case in just a minute, but more Put off your mourning clothes, your clothes of the widow, and put on the normal wear that a young woman would wear if she were going out for the day in order to signify that now you are ready to move on in your life and begin um, looking at a new chapter after you have finished your time of grieving and mourning over the loss of your husband. So she tells her, wash, put on perfume, and put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. And Ruth says to her, I will do everything that you say. All right, we got to camp here for just a couple of minutes. How do I say this to you? It would be so easy for us with our Hollywood mentality, with our oversexed society to turn this into some type of liaison in the middle of the night. And beloved, I just got to tell you right now, we need to just draw a line and stop right there. If this book, the book of Ruth, tells us anything about Boaz and Ruth, it tells us that they are godly, honorable, God-fearing, God-honoring people. They are in every 
way that can be described absolutely above reproach. So no matter how our minds may want us to wander in another direction, we need to come back and say, but don't forget what God says. This is not Ruth offering herself to Boaz in the middle of the night for any kind of physical pleasure. This is not something about, oh, uncover his feet. Yeah, we know what that means. Yeah, we know what it means. It means uncover his feet, okay? It means be there so that when he awakens and talks with you, you can have a conversation with him about his role as the family redeemer of our family. So I just don't want us to let our minds go somewhere that the scripture doesn't take us. And so Naomi gives Ruth some very specific instructions. She says, now when you get there, I want you to stay kind of hidden behind the piles of grain until you see where he's going to sleep. And then once he gets to sleep, I want you to uncover his feet. And I think we'll see why in just a minute she wanted him to do, he wa- she wanted her to do that. And then do whatever he tells you to do. That's the plan. Strange to our 21st century American ears. Not so strange to the ancient world's ears. And so we come to verse 6 and we begin to see Naomi's instructions acted out. Naomi tells her, now, whatever Boaz tells you to do, that's what you need to do. Whatever the man says to you, notice the way she says that, he will explain to you what you should do. So then we get to verse 6, and we have this conversation, and it's broken up into several parts. And so we start at verse 6. It says, she went down to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her. See, this is just one more sign of Ruth's faithful obedience to her mother-in-law. We talked about this some last week. When, when Ruth married into Elimelech's family, when Ruth married one of their sons, probably Malon, when she married into that family, she basically gave up her former family and became part of that. And she abandoned her God to follow the God of Israel. And so when her mother-in-law said, I want you to do this, she did everything that she was told. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. Now let me just say one more time. This is not like the story from Genesis with Lot becoming drunk and, and having inappropriate relationships with his daughters. This is not that kind of thing. This is not Boaz is reeling on the floor until he passes out. This is a man who's had a hard day of work with his workers. He's had a good meal in the evening. He's satisfied and thankful to God for the wonderful blessings that God has given him. And he sleeps out there on the threshing floor with his workers, unlike most wealthy landowners who would go back home and sleep in their own bed at home. He stays out there with them, a co-worker with his workers, satisfied with a good day's labor, but very tired. So he goes in, falls asleep, and then she went in secretly, stealthily, quietly, and uncovered his feet and lay down. So she lies down on the threshing floor, doesn't snuggle up next to him or anything like that. She's just lying there sleeping, uncovers his feet, and we find out why in the next verse. At midnight, it says in verse 8, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. That's interesting that the Holman uses an exclamation point 
at the end of that sentence because there's no punctuation in the Hebrew. But what it's saying basically is it's a aha moment. Behold, there was, there was a woman sleeping at his feet. But I told you we'd find out why Ruth was supposed to uncover Boaz's feet. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a lot warmer natured than Sharon. And a lot of times we'll go to sleep and she'll be, you know, in her fleece pajamas underneath three blankets and I'm sleeping on top of the covers. And I'm just happy as a clam until about 12 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden I wake up and I am cold and I want to pull up under the covers and get warmed up. I really believe it's as simple as Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet so that during the night, as the night air settled in, he would get chilly. Because it's interesting, that word startled is not like when you hear a sound. The word literally is shivered. I don't know about up here in this part of the country before I come from down south, we talk about when a possum runs over your grave. <laughs> you know that phrase where you just kind of have a hoo kind of a feel like that? That's what happened to Boaz according to this word in the Hebrew. Why? Because his feet got cold. And he shivered, startled awake, and realized that there was someone sleeping at his feet. And what's so interesting is, when he says, who are you? We're not sure whether it was a masculine or a feminine you, because he's not sure. And so he says in verse 9, who are you? And Ruth responds, I am Ruth, your slave. Now let's stop again. You know, as ancient as the Hebrew language is, and as simple as it is compared to a lot of languages, there are still some subtleties in the language that unfortunately we have a hard time with in English. You remember back in chapter 2, when Boaz and Ruth were talking, Ruth said to him, why would you be so kind to me? I am only a slave, okay? In that passage, the word slave literally was like a, 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 a worker, just a, a servant, okay? Someone that came in and worked either for a wage or it might be to pay off a debt or something like that. In this verse, however, it's a totally different word. The word is amat. And amat in the Hebrew was um, like a handmaid. In other words, it was someone who was not just a piece of property, not just someone who was paid labor. It was someone who was dependent upon another person for their livelihood and for their life. The word actually was even used oftentimes with a woman for, for her husband because she was living under his protection. And so she says to him, I am Ruth, your handmaid, the one who is looking to you for my sustenance and my protection. And then she says something that is phenomenal. That point, that's pretty okay. But then she says the most amazing sentence probably in the entire book. She says, in the Holman, it says, spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. Now, that word cloak is literally the word wing. Wing, W-I-N-G. Spread your wing over me. Now, does that strike something in your mind if you were here last week? Last week, when Boaz blessed Ruth, he said, and may God spread his wings over you because you have come to him for shelter. And now Ruth takes that very same word that also meant a cloak or a covering, something that you were covered when you were chilled or when you needed protection from the, from the elements. And she says to him, I'm your handmaid. Spread your wing over me and protect me. 
But it wasn't just that. It also meant the edge of your garment. Maybe the subtle play on words was, you're not the only one that's shivering tonight. Would you cover me? But she didn't literally mean, would you cover me right now? It's a euphemism for take me into your life as your wife. She was asking him to take her and protect her as a husband and a provider. Now, why is that so strange? Well, come on. She's a Moabite, and she's asking an Israelite. She's a young woman. She's asking an older man. She is a servant. He is a wealthy landowner. She is poor. He is rich. And yet she is the one coming to him, asking him if he would take her as his wife and protect her. She says, you are my family redeemer. Let me just say one quick word about that, and then we'll talk about it some more in just a few minutes. This is not the same thing as what we technically call leveret marriage. There's a place in the Bible where it talks about if a woman's husband dies and leaves her with no children, that man, that dead man's brother, would marry the woman, and the first child that she would bear, the first male child that she would have, would be named after the dead husband so that his line would continue in the Jewish line in the Israelite line. Any other children would be the new husband's children. This was something that was done by the dead man's brother, the next of kin. If there was no brother, it would be the next closest kin to that dead person. But that is not what is talked about here. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was more of a financial provider. It would be like what we probably would call in today's world a, a, a rich uncle. In other words, someone in the extended family that saw a family member that was destitute, that was struggling, and they would come alongside and say, I will take care of you. I will see to it that your needs are met. But there was no obligation on Boaz's part to be the leveret marriage partner to her. And we know that if we go on and read further into chapter 4 because the child that they bear is not considered Malon's child. And by the way, he wasn't the next of kin to Malon, it was of Elimelech. In that case, I guess he should have married Naomi, okay? So please understand, what she is asking of him is not something that he is duty-bound to do. It's a request that she is making. And look how Boaz responds. But before we look at his response, let's remind ourselves of something. There are any number of things that Boaz could have said to her before we see what he did say. He could have seen this as some type of inappropriate physical request on her part. And he could have shamed her and scolded her and sent her away. If he had been a less righteous man, he could have taken advantage of her. I mean, let's just be honest. There's so many ways. Humanly speaking, this was such a risky thing for Ruth to do. To go in the middle of the night to a place where normally women were never found, only the men workers, and to risk asking him this favor. So with that in mind, look at Boaz's answer. The first thing he says to her is what should relieve us of any concern. He says, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before. That means you have shown more love now, more chesed, more faithfulness, even than you did with your mother-in-law. Why? Because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid. I will do for you whatever you say. 
since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. He accepts her. He is so honored and excited and pleased that she would honor her family, her adopted family, her married family, by going to her father-in-law's kinsman and asking that she be absorbed into that Israelite family rather than going off and finding some other man and wooing him into being her husband. But there's a caveat. In verse 12, he says, Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I, a closer kin than me. So stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So he said, you rest at ease. I will take care of this. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Because unfortunately, there were other kinds of women that sometimes came to the threshing floor at night. And he did not want Ruth's reputation to be damaged. And so he said, let's get you back home while it's still dark. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. This was a wrap that they would use around them over the cloak. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. Why? Well, maybe it's a little like that she had come to get grain. Maybe because he wanted her to have something from him. We'll find out in just a minute why. When she held it out, he measured six measures of barley, and she went into the town. So she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi asked her, how did it go, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her, and she said, now here's we find out why. He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And what's interesting is in the Hebrew, it just says, don't go back to your mother empty. You remember We didn't read it, but back in chapter 1, when Naomi and Ruth first came back into Bethlehem, Naomi said, I went away full, but I have come back empty. And Boaz says, take this, because I don't want your mother-in-law to be empty. I want you, Ruth, and your mother-in-law to know that I will keep my promise. It was like a down payment on what he was going to do. And Naomi said, my daughter, now we must wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest until he resolves this today. Well, there's a whole lot more I could say about this passage, but I need to bring us to a conclusion. I need to bring us to what this passage really says to us. As I said in my opening prayer, the last couple of months as I've studied this book, it has taken on an amazing beauty. And I believe it is the most subtle theological picture of our salvation of any in the Old Testament. And again, I can't go into all the complexities of what I've been learning over the last seven or eight weeks in studying this book, but I want to just crack open a little bit so maybe you can glimpse some of the beauty of this passage. And I'm going to do it by asking four questions. First question, what was Ruth looking for? Well, when it started out, She was just looking for somebody to take care of her temporal needs. She just needed someone that would let her gather a little bit of grain so she could have food to eat. 
She wasn't looking for a relationship. She wasn't looking for a husband. She, she had no hope for any of that. All she wanted was her daily bread. But what did she find? She found so much more than she was looking for. She found a redeemer. She found a husband. She found someone who would wrap his cloak around her and embrace her as his own. But what about Boaz? But wait, before we get to Boaz, let me, let me, let me ask something else. Once she realized that Boaz could offer her more than just protection, what was her role? And this is where I get the line about the two ways to find rest. On the one hand, she had to take the initiative. Boaz was going to respect her as a widow. He was not going to make any advance to her. He was not going to try to woo her. She had to come to him and act. She had to come and say, I am asking you to take me into your family and care for me as a wife. She had to take the initiative. But then once she did that, she had to recognize that she could not make that happen. She was dependent on Boaz's response. She was dependent on how he would respond to her request. So on the one hand, she had to act. On the other hand, she had to rest and wait. And then we have Boaz's response. You see, he wasn't obligated to take her. There was no mandate for, her, for him to do this for her. But because of his love for the Lord and his love for Ruth and what he saw in her, her character, her, her, her righteousness, her godliness, he reached out to her and said, I will take you to be my wife. I will take you and have a relationship with you in marriage, and I will protect you, and I will watch out for you, and I will see to it that either this man, this other near kinsman takes you, or I will redeem you. And I think kind of hidden behind that, he's saying, and I really want it to be me. But he wasn't obligated to it. He did it because of his love. And then the fourth question is, what was God all about in this? You see, God started with that little Moabite girl, and he literally moved heaven and earth, created a famine in Israel to send Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kilion to Moab so that they would meet this young woman. He would marry her. He would then die. She would come back to Bethlehem. She would happen to land in the field of Boaz to work. She would then realize that he was the redeemer of her mother-in-law's family, and she would then be given this man as her husband. God so cared about Ruth an outsider, an outcast, an enemy, that he superintended every step of the way to bring the two of them together. Now, beloved, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to know biblical Hebrew and Greek to understand what a beautiful picture this is of Christ. Now, remember, a type doesn't mean that every single little detail is the same. But it does mean that we can see images of Christ and the gospel in this story. And so I have to close by asking you several questions. First of all, when you think about Jesus Christ, the one who was born in a manger, grew up, lived, died, resurrected, what are you looking for from him? What do you want from Jesus? 
Do you just want a cosmic bellhop that you can ring a bell when you need something and he'll come running to take care of your needs? When you lose a job, you can pray and he'll give you a new job. When you're down on your luck, you ring a bell and a prayer and he comes and takes care of that. You know what? We should look to him to provide for our needs. But he wants so much more than that. He wants a relationship with us. And a relationship implies the fact that we both give. We can't give even an infinitesimal amount compared to what he gives us. But we still have to make a surrender to him in order to be in a relationship. It doesn't matter how much he has and how little we have. He wants to build a relationship with us where we each surrender to the other. And do you recognize the fact that he is not obligated? Christ is under no obligation to accept us except for his own love. We have sinned. We are the ones that are bound. We are the ones that come to him. I know, I know, like a lot of you, I grew up in a generation where we talked about accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we created this picture of him coming to us, offering us salvation. And then we choose whether or not to accept it. But I don't know about you, but when I prayed to receive Christ, I asked him to save me. I asked him to come into my life and be my Lord and be my Savior. And so, just like Ruth, I came to him recognizing that I had nothing to bring to the relationship except for my sinfulness. And I prayed and asked him to accept me as his child. And in love, he reached out and said, yes, I will. I will take you. I will redeem you. I will save you from yourself and your sin. And in the same way, we come to Christ. And if you have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ personally, understand that he will not come and beat your door down. He will wait until you recognize the fact that only in him will you find rest. And then he will respond to you with love and acceptance. He will spread his cloak around you and he will bring you so much more than just the temporal needs. He will provide you with everything, both now and into eternity. You see, I mentioned just a minute ago that when Boaz put that barley into Ruth's shawl and sent her home, it was like a down payment. It was a sign to Naomi that I will take care of this and there will come a time, and we'd see it when we get into chapter four, when I will come and take your daughter-in-law to be my wife. And not only will I care for her, but I'll also care for you. And you see, when Jesus saves us, when he redeems us, when we come into a relationship with him, we are given that down payment. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and it's not consummated yet until Christ returns and takes us home to be with him. But until then, we live knowing that we are betrothed to him. And we walk in that. And the last thing is, do you see how God brings you to his son? how he did that for you, how he brought you to the place where you could meet Jesus Christ and come to know him. Just like he moved heaven and earth to get Ruth into that field, in, onto that threshing floor, so that Boaz could accept her. In the same way, God 
guided you or is guiding you to him, to his son. So here's what I want to say. Wherever you are right now, if you are God's child, if you've accepted his son as your savior, if you have surrendered your life to him and he has wrapped his cloak around you and taken you as his bride, then know that no matter what you're going through right now, he's caring for you. You may be grieving today. And in your grief, he wraps his arms around you. You may be frightened today. And in your fear, he embraces you into his arms and says, be at rest, be at peace. You may be guilty today because of sin. And he said, just come to me and we'll make things right. You may not yet be a follower of Jesus Christ. You may not have yet surrendered your life to him. You may not have yet come to him and said, I can't save myself, I need you. And he says to you, I will accept you. I will redeem you. I will save you. But you have to ask, and then you have to wait to hear his answer. So wherever you are today, understand that God in his wonderful, loving sovereignty is guiding you to his son. And in that relationship, just like Ruth and Boaz, he will give you rest. He will give you rest. Let's pray together. Father, every one of us have been seeking And sometimes we seek for the wrong things. Sometimes we just seek for the temporal things that we need. We just seek for the salve of our loss. And yet you want so much more than just to fulfill those needs. You want to build an ongoing relationship with us through your son. For many of us, we did that in the past, and yet we still sometimes forget that this is not about coming to you with our request list and having you fulfill it for us. It's about being in a loving give and take relationship. And even though we have so little to give and you have so much that you've given us, we still come together and walk together. And you have given us our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with us through times of grief, through times of loss, through times of fear, through times of frustration, through times of guilt. And Father, there are some of us who are still trying to figure out how to take care of our own needs. We've not been willing to admit yet that we just can't do it on our own. And I pray that today, as this beautiful story of Ruth And Boaz and Naomi has unfolded before us over these last two weeks. That if we have not yet surrendered our lives to Christ, we will recognize that just like Ruth, we are beggars. Just like Ruth, we are outcasts. Just like Ruth, we are foreigners spiritually from you. And yet, you, Father, have superintended to bring us to this moment right now. And you are waiting for us to ask, will you accept me? And Lord, if there's anyone right now listening and praying with me this prayer, I ask that you 
but open their hearts. Allow them to turn around and ask you and ask your son to be their savior and their redeemer so that he can warmly and lovingly and graciously say, yes. For it's in his name that we pray it.